be your word as we conclude Malachi, as we wrap up with dark clouds and silver linings, may we understand what that means for you to come to us as a whole race of people throughout all the millennia to one day judge us all. So Lord, with this ominous thought in so many's hearts, I pray that we would, you would open our heart to hear what you want us to hear from the prophet Malachi. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just walk away casually thinking, well, my place is set. I don't need to worry. May we take our spiritual lives seriously. So, Lord, may we worship you as we look at your word in Jesus' name. The story is told that there was this evangelist named Seth Joshua, and he arrived in a Welsh town in 1904 to hold a revival. And so when he was arriving, he noticed these posters all over town plastered up about this impersonator. This They had kind of cartoon drawings that were making fun of him, but this famous impersonator was going to come and was going to mock Seth Joshua in an evening of what was promised to be hilarious entertainment. And so a lot of people came, and and the guy, the impersonator, was a very effective presenter and speaker, and he nailed Seth Joshua's style of preaching a sermon all exactly, and and people were laughing and hooting and hollering. and, And so this impersonator was so enlivened by this wonderful response that he decided to go ahead and imitate him on giving an altar call. So he's imitating Seth Joshua saying, come forward, doing the whole, the whole bit. And, and suddenly this, this dark look comes over his face and he falls on the stage with a thud. And the people rushed up and discovered he had died. And the people were horrified. Now, you got to say, there's just a certain thing like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. How come God doesn't do that more often when somebody's arrogant and, and, and mocking him and all that, right? Do you kind of feel that, that, wow, I wish this would happen. Why is judgment so long in coming? Well, today we may long for God's judgment and justice and peace to step in right now. So Malachi, that's what he's going to end his prophecy with in Malachi chapter 4. He's saying judgment is coming. There are dark clouds on the horizon, but there is a silver lining in the storm. The sun is shining behind those dark clouds, and not just the physical sun, but the sun of God. I forgot to mention, by the way, I moved the coloring books and Crayolas and all that are at the very back, so if you think you want to provide your child some inter- or your husband some entertainment... <laughs> And there are about three or four more clipboards back there. And so you can inconspicuous, yes, go get one for Danny. Um, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist it. It just sort of presented itself, you know. Anyway, it's in the back. You can inconspicuously go back there if your child needs some uh, distraction. Let's read Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. 
Now, the prophet Joel described the day of the Lord, and he also said that it was a day that would burn like a furnace. Fire was often an Old Testament symbol for God's intense judgment. So the final day of the Lord, though, and Joshua, I'm not Joshua, Joel talked about this, Malachi, and there are days of the Lord that happen in Scripture, but there's going to be a final day of the Lord at the end times, during the end, at the end of the great tribulation, we believe. But in the meantime, we glimpse dark clouds of a coming storm. Wouldn't you agree? How many are a little afraid and nervous about the coronavirus? Come on, our governor declared a state of emergency yesterday. But I want to encourage you, don't be afraid. But let, just look, look for opportunities, God opportunities to talk to your neighbors and your friends and people that are in a panic to say, you know, God's out there. He's got this. That doesn't promise it won't be an epidemic, but God has this. So don't be afraid and go isolate and, and never talk to anybody, but start engaging your neighbors because this is an opportunity because people are terrified out there. I went to Costco yesterday. Well, I'll admit, I went to get gas <clears throat> And I didn't buy anything. I wanted the little snack thingies that's in there. And one of the snack ladies goes, why are, why are you, did you choose to come? The, I, there's no place to park. And, and she goes, it's Madhouse. I go, yeah, what's going on? Is there some, uh, something I don't know about? She goes, oh, yeah, the coronavirus. People are terrified. So they're all stocking up. And the lines were from every register of Costco all the way into the places, you know, the, where the... the merchandise is on the shelves and you couldn't get by people are afraid god is good and he is going to talk to us so help him be his mouth to tell people about jesus to tell people you know there is dark clouds on the horizon there is a silver lining in the storm because the sun is shining behind those clouds well on. Remember, in our previous discussions of Malachi, well, not really discussions, my previous presentations, Malachi uh, was speaking to Israel because they were very afraid, all these evildoers and these arrogant people like this impersonator, they just seemed to get away with it. And they were concerned, why do they get away with this stuff? I'm better than they are. And, and why do they seem to be rich and having God's blessing? Well, that's what Malachi is once again picking up that theme. And as he ends the book, he's saying, they're not going to escape in the end. They will dramatically receive God's judgment. But here's the caveat. It's in God's timing. Now, we all like the go, fall down on the stage, dead kind of, responses, but God gives them chances to repent and find him. And so it'll be in God's timing, not ours. And so we just have to put ourselves in God's hands. But do we need to be reminded this morning of that, that that God has this, that when the final judgment comes, God will take care of things. But until then, can we trust him? Do we need to be reminded of what Malachi is saying to the people in his day for our day? While the wicked are described, the arrogant are described as chaff. You guys, probably some of you have grown wheat and you understand the difference between the kernel and chaff. And they used to beat it out and thresh it, you know, high on a hill and thresh the grain and then throw it up so the wind would blow the chaff. Because it's lightweight, it's these inedible little husks 
And Malachi is using this image to say, you know, when you put chaff in a furnace or on a fire, it burns up pretty quick, just, just like that, you know, no time at all. And he's saying, that's the image of what will one day happen to all these arrogant and evildoers that you're all worried about right now. They will burn up as quick as chaff in God's judgment. And so that's kind of an ominous picture, don't you think? But he's reminding them they'll get what's coming someday. And in fact, he says, not just like chaff, which you say, well, what about the rest of the plant? And he extends the metaphor and says they're going to get pulled up by their root, not just a little of the outside stuff. They're going to, every branch, every root of their evilness will be burned up as God judges them. So the wicked will one day be forgotten. So in other words, we need that long view, don't we? That what's happening today is alarming as it is, whether it's a coronavirus or or government that seems to be falling apart, uh, more and more uh, problems and, and issues that are going on all over the world and in our country on the streets of our cities, which are no longer safe in so many places. God has this, and we need to take the long view. But a lot of people don't seem to understand that. There was a survey, I think, you know, a few decades ago, and they asked, you know, people this question, do you believe in the judgment day and such? So uh, the 80% in this survey believe there will be a judgment day where people will stand before God and answer for their sins. 60% of those people in that survey believe there is a hell where wicked are punished. Now, wow, that's pretty impressive. 2% believe they will go to hell. So there's going to be a judgment, 80% agree, 60% agree, you know, that there's a literal hell, even though that some of our theologians in our church nowadays are telling people there isn't, and that's wrong. 2% say, wait, it won't involve me, it's going to involve really bad people, you know, people that are so evil and wicked that are not anything close to how I am. God has different statistics, though. Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus says, Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. And then verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Chilling words, don't you think? I mean, those two verses out of Matthew 7 ought to be very unsettling, even for us to wonder, wow, what what is the will of my Father? I believe it's genuine faith in Jesus. Some have prayed to receive Christ. Maybe they were a little child, maybe it was later. But then they live for themselves for the rest of their life, and they think, it's okay, I was five, or I was 20, or whatever. And, and you know, I, I have my fire insurance, right? You know, fire insurance from what Malachi just said. And they think it's okay to live however they want because they're safe. They should read these verses. Is that a genuine faith? They ignore, some ignore the fact that faith is is not just saying some prayer. It's a journey. It's an evidence of something that flows out of you for the remainder of your life. Then there are others who live in fear on the opposite end of the spectrum. They think they have to earn their way to God, and they're never secure and never 
um, feeling like God accepts them. So they're constantly fearful and worried because they have to do better or do more because God won't accept them. Do you know anyone like that? We have both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I don't have to worry about how I live. Yeah, you know, I have to earn my way all the time. I made these sin problems back when I was earlier and I still have to pay for them so God will accept me. Neither one of those is correct. Faith in Jesus Christ that grows and continues and doesn't just coast to the finish line. So Malachi is trying to get their attention. Take this seriously, he says. Verse 2, but for you who revere my name, in contrast to the ones in verse 1, my name, the son of righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings. little hark the herald angels uh, carol that pulled that, that image out. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. And then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. So for those who revere God, the day of the Lord is a completely different scenario with a different outcome. God doesn't want you to live in fear that, you know, the least little struggle or stumble that you have and you have to be good in your own strength or God's going to bring you to a place that it's just miserable. But God doesn't want empty faith like we talked about either, coasting to that finish line. God wants you in a relationship in which you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but now you live it out as you go along day by day. Not perfectly. You have bad days and such, but you're saying, I'm still growing. I can still look back and see some progress in my faith life. So for true followers of God, the son of righteousness will rise. Now, I like that image, sun, you know, light. You know, John chapter 1 talked about Jesus, you know, being the light. But, you know, think about the sun. I think God has put all kinds of little hints in nature about who he is. And this, I think the sun, sunlight in particular, is one of those. And so sun is a wonderful thing. You know, we had a pretty long stretch of no sun, right? In fact, uh, when I was listening to the classic radio station out of Seattle for and they said, you know, a, couple, a week or so ago, it was the first little stretch of sunlight they'd had since Thanksgiving. Aren't you glad you don't live in Seattle? It did kind of feel like that in January for us, though, didn't it? And so when that sun came out, we felt, oh, my gosh, I love being out. It's sunny. We have the shades up. You can look out the window. It's sunny today. The fog is gone. But... For us, us who, uh, sun is a wonderful thing with vitamin D and, and, and it lifts our spirits. It also has a downside, doesn't it? It also has a downside because it can burn you, us with the pale white skin who have to put cream on our face to kill precancer cells. Remember, I had blotchy. It's still kind of there. Because I have to watch it. The sun can burn and destroy. Remember that in July because it also can make it so hot and miserable if you're working out. So the sun, is it's healing and it's helpful, and the sun can burn and destroy. How can it do both things? Because that, I think, is an image that the Son of God will do both things. We see the Jesus that died on the cross who comes and says, I'll live in your heart, but one day he will come back in bodily form, and he won't be coming with arms wide open saying, come to me, all of you. I love you. I mean, it's going to be the judgment time. 
and he's going to separate. So there are, there is a side of love and grace to God, and there is a side of holiness, righteousness, and judgment. You can't just look at one without the other. They are in perfect balance and harmony. Often we get emphasizing one at the expense of the other. But one day, Jesus will come again, and that will be a different image than we get in the Gospels of Jesus, although he did warn in the Olivet Discourse about that. But the response of the redeemed has been like, you know, a calf that's been cooped up in the barn and hasn't seen the sun. Anyone ever watch when you let them out in the spring? I mean, I have been around a farm, but there, of course, Jim, that would be. And you let them out and they just go wild, skipping and jumping and like, you know, a new life. Right? Can you take that image of what a calf must feel like for seeing sun probably for the first time and imagine how you're going to feel when you open your eyes and see Jesus face to face and your sin nature, it's gone. All the things you struggled with, all those problems, it's gone. And it's sort of going to be like, wow, what a release. Won't that, you know, isn't that a kind of a wonderful image? Like a calf skipping out of the barn on the first day of spring for them, unrestrained joy released from your fleshly nature, elation to be in heaven. And it even promises, you know, one day you're worried about these arrogant and these evildoers, but you're going to walk on them like ashes. You're going to trample them, Malachi promises, all you who are so worried. And that had to be if you've been oppressed and pushed down and and even, you know, some lives taken on how the oppressed oppressed. I mean, it, it wasn't just sort of like, I want, you know, raise your taxes. I mean, they physically put them in prison and, and assaulted them and even killed them. And, you know, they say, one day you're going to walk on their ashes because you will be God's righteous people who will triumph in the end. So our first point out of two this morning, final judgment will bring final righteousness. For some, that's not a good thing, that final judgment. For others, it will be a wonderful thing. But how can God be both Savior and judge? How can he be loving and gracious and still holy and, and just? Well, here's an image. I like this story. In a frontier town, of course, long ago before cars, there were horses. And they, they of course, carried carts on them, right? A horse buggy or a horse or a, a dray that came behind it. And so one day a horse bolted and it was uh, the mom and dad had left and the little boy is all by himself sitting in this, this wagon. And the horse got spooked and bolted and go ran, running off at full speed. And this man jumped on a horse and tracked it down and risked his own life to jump off his horse and, and get onto that wagon and, and, and catch the horse and bring that wagon to a stop. And he saved that little boy's life. Well, unfortunately, as that little boy grew up one day, he murdered somebody. And so he got caught. They put him, he was in court, and he was standing before the judge, and he looked up, and he noticed, wow, I know this judge. This is the man who saved me. And so he says to the judge, you rescued me. But then the judge answered him and silenced him and said, I'm sorry. Then I was your savior. Today I'm your judge and I must sentence you to death. That's Jesus' role. 
He has both. He saved us, but he will also judge us, both believers and unbelievers, though in separate ways. So dark clouds are coming. For some, that will be painful. For others, it will be joyful. So the question is, which camp are you in? Which way are you looking forward to Jesus coming again? If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ and his death for your sins, then you can look for the silver lining in the dark clouds. Even today, amidst all of the problems and all of the fears and panic racking our society and our world, if you've lived your life on your own, though, without faith in Jesus, you're facing the dark clouds of God's judgment. And you want to know, how do I get out of that? How do I get to the silver lining camp? I'd love to talk to you after church. Any of our elders would love to talk to you. The guy that was standing up here doing announcements would love to talk to you about how you could become a follower of Jesus Christ and look forward to a positive judgment. Then you stand before God one day. So Malachi chapter 4 goes on, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So Malachi tells them, prepare for the day of the Lord by remembering God's commandments. Now, you remember what remember means, right? Remember doesn't mean just, oh yeah, I could recite those. I can tell you what those are. This means to remember in the sense of living them out in your everyday life, not just knowing them in your head intellectually, living them. Showing people they're real. Because those commandments, they weren't something to try to restrain the people from enjoying life or, or oh my gosh, why has God come up with that? I mean, it's not like the dietary things that we don't observe today, but they were literally saving people's lives back then. They had a purpose for, for community health and sanitation and all kinds. Of, and then, of course, moral laws that protected their souls. And so living out God's commandments is something that you do and having those statutes is a charter for the nation that protects them and brings them peace. Same with God's commandments in the New Testament. In Sunday school, Harold Flowers has been teaching us about the Sermon on the Mount. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there that's there to teach us how to live out God's kingdom commandments. It's like the constitution for the kingdom. What's the kingdom of God going to look like? Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, chapter 5 through 7. You know, and you can learn what does it mean to be what God wants us to be. And there's some very challenging parts in that sermon. But they are there to bring us protection and peace. Verse 4 and 5 goes on to say, God will send Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord. Now, Elijah the prophet, the actual prophet in fleshly form the first time. Do you remember in First Kings how he turned Israel away from the worship of Baal? Worship of Baal had dominated the culture and their religion. And they were not really worshiping God at all. And Elijah stood on that mountain and he turned it around with the calling down rain when they couldn't call down rain and destroyed those prophets. And it turned Israel around, at least for a while. It took him took him to a different place. And so Baal worship was no longer after, eventually God took him into exile long after Elijah, but they never had idolatry like that again. 
So Elijah was this image of someone who came and turned the tables and turned the tide. And so Jesus identified in his time, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, he identified that John the Baptist was at least a partial fulfillment of Malachi, of what Malachi had said, this Elijah coming again. Let's read that. It says, he, which is John the Baptist, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness, of righteousness, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the Elijah prophecy has only been partially fulfilled. Elijah had a piece, but then John the Baptist fulfilled it partially. But we still have a future Elijah who will come. Now, I can't tell you who that is. There's been a lot of speculation. But we know that before God finally and completely restores our world, there will be someone and some group of people that will speak out into our culture to say repent, that will restore the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom that God wants. So verse 6 He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So you notice there God's restoration one day will include families and God's restoration even now can include families for those who have all of these issues and problems but when they find Jesus, they find a pathway for healing. Uh, One effect of a life without God at the center is conflicted families, conflicted relationships. Wouldn't you agree? In Deuteronomy, God describes the judgments that's going to come on the nation if they don't follow him. And it included the disintegration of families. So for a society doesn't seek God, one of the, the outcomes will be disintegrating families. Hmm. Can we see a correspondence there? to families disintegrating because we don't really as a nation turn to God. Today, families are torn apart by issues like substance abuse, divorce, abortion, lack of parenting, and domestic violence. A couple of weeks ago, I kind of already gave you these statistics, but do you know in, the, in looking up on the Internet in the years 2011 through 2015, Stevens County was above the state average for domestic violence. And at that point, Ponderay County was number one county in the state. But now there's a new leader, and as of 2019, that's Spokane County, the highest in the state for domestic violence. How does that happen? How do we become part of the solution to restoring families? Our women's ministry is actually talking about that talking about some ideas and some plans that that maybe we can start engaging the people in Stevens County to help with the issue of domestic violence. But parenting is one of the keys, right? And parenting is so much more than controlling a child's behavior. You know, one of the most famous books when I was in seminary in the 70s was James Dobson's Dare to Discipline. It's a great book, but a lot of people think, well, that's my main role as a parent, just control the children. Let me tell you about a study from some time ago. They took four different models of parenting, and it basically measured these two factors, nurture and discipline. How much nurture is there? 
How does a child feel loved? And how much discipline, how much boundaries, limits, and such are put on children? So you have these two. They're kind of like put on an axis. You know, one goes this way and that, and they put quadrants to say, here's some styles of parenting. Alarmingly, authoritarian parenting, where there's a lot of discipline but not so much nurture, had the same outcome in the kids struggling with issues as those who neglected their children. They could be drug addicts. They could be working too much. We, in, living in Egypt, saw the same dynamics in the richest kids in the country because their parents weren't around. They were raised by drivers and nannies. Well, so it isn't only the poor that have neglectful parenting. But imagine, what I'm telling you is that here you have authoritarian where, you know, the children get very hard discipline, and people who don't discipline their kids, they don't, don't really nurture their kids, and they, their kids turn out the same. Now, what does that tell us? When they saw the one thing where they balanced love and, or nurture and discipline, so you have to have both, the kids were the best adjusted by far. So that tells us we can't just say, well, we've got to control our kids. I would submit to you the most important thing you're doing is shaping your child's heart, and that nurture is absolutely critical. Your children need to feel you love them, not just as soon as I step out of line, you're going to get a, a paddle. I grew up with, in, in my era a long time ago, but my dad, you know, it, it was sort of the switch, only his switch was a, a belt, cowboy belt with a metal tip that left welts. And we feared my father. So when my dad, who was a veterinarian, traveled around to go, you know, he was a large animal vet, and so he was gone sometimes for a couple of nights, and boy, we were so happy in that time. We were free. We weren't afraid. So when you look at parenting and you're saying, how do we help our families? We need to train them not just how to discipline their kids, but though that's important, We need to tell them and teach them how to nourish their child's heart, how to fill up their emotional tank, how to help them feel loved, and how to shape and direct them to the pathway God has made for them because they're not all the same, are they? They're different. We can't use the same cookie-cutter approach on every kid. So parenting is shaping a child's heart. And then Malachi mentioned that word curse, as you see in the verse on the screen. Now, he had mentioned a curse back in chapter 3, verse 9. This is actually a different Hebrew word for curse. This one means to set aside for complete and permanent destruction. So permanent destruction. So he's saying a curse is going to come on you. Now, I'll just tell you kind of a, a belief and a conviction I have about when Jesus came, presented himself as the Messiah, and he was rejected and, of course, crucified, by both the Jews and the Romans. Less than 40 years after that, Jerusalem was leveled, 70 AD. I think there's a correspondence. I think this was the partial fulfillment of a complete curse. You rejected your Messiah. You contributed to killing him, and they were destroyed. Not one stone, as Jesus prophesied, would be left on top of another. And it happened within that generation that had rejected him kind of scary, don't you think? And so when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman army with the general Titus, I think they were 
fulfilling the prophecy and fulfilling the consequences of their rejection of God. So only by the living God and living for God can we properly prepare for this final restoration and judgment. That's the silver lining in the dark clouds. So number two point, final judgment will bring final restoration. We have final judgment bringing final righteousness, and it will also bring restoration. So God's final words in the Old Testament are flashing lights, warning sirens. There will be nothing else put in the, the last verse of the Old Testament is warning. The next verse is Matthew 1.1. That will be the beginning of Jesus' story coming on earth. So there are dark clouds coming. Are you at risk? Judgment is coming for our world, and it won't be pleasant. But we can look forward to Jesus' second coming if we're living in that faith, true faith relationship with God. So if you're one of those who are in fear or uncertainty, or you want to just learn more about what that means, there, by the way, on the outline, if you happen to follow along in your bulletin, did you know on the flip side, every week there are questions for you to do either in your small group, if you choose, or at home, just to look through and study the passage. And not just hear the word, but study it and say, what does this mean for me? And so I would encourage you to look at those, that insert, not just this week, every week, because you don't have to live in fear. Final story. There was a BBC reality show. BBC is the British television. And five men from diverse backgrounds voluntarily joined a monastery for 40 days, and they agreed during that 40 days they would do all the same things the monks did. They would eat the same food, take their meals at the same time, have times of, of prayer, and have extended times of silence. Tony was one of those men, and Tony produced softcore pornography, and he joined them for 40 days. And after his 40 days were up in the monastery, he was in a kind of a crisis. He felt torn about giving up his newfound peace as he returned to the world. So here's an an interchange dialogue between Tony and one of the monks named Brother Francis. Tony says, I'm not going to give up my job. I'm not going to go sitting in church all day and read the Bible. I need to live. I need to keep my lifestyle. But I want to keep this peace alive. And I know the minute I leave here, that peace will fade. Brother Francis answers him, well, perhaps vocation is about discovering who you really are and what you should really be doing. I want to give you this white stone. Remember that from our Revelation study, chapter 217? He said, I want to give you this white stone. We have our family name, but we also have a white stone name written in heaven. Maybe our vocation is finding out what our white stone name really is. The guy who wrote this illustration, a guy named John Sauer, or Sower, comments, fatherlessness has become the new cultural norm. This story is being written into the lives of this generation, a story that can be heard in our songs, seen in our movies, read in our blogs, 
a story of grief and pain, of loneliness and rejection. These are the sons and daughters who don't know their true name. They are searching anywhere for who they really are. And if in their search, they bring this question of identity to anyone who will listen. Have you seen that? When you hear the music, watch the television, read stuff on the internet, there's pain and loneliness. People don't know who they are and they're desperately searching. But do you know your true name, your identity, your true identity in Jesus Christ? Do you know who you really are? Because that's the silver lining in the dark clouds that are approaching. Today, you can be God's child, loved by him, if you have a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. So, Lord, these are the final words in the Old Testament. May we take them and look at them and understand them, but understand what they mean not just for the people back in 440 B.C., but for us today, for us in our individual life. May we know what it means to have that relationship with Jesus, that we know that we are safe and secure in you and that many might say, Lord, Lord, and not enter the kingdom of heaven. But we know because of what Jesus did for us that we are about to remember in communion that we are secure in your hands. And that gives us not a way to earn our salvation to go to heaven, but a way to relate to you out of the fullness of what you have done for us. We live for you. And it brings us peace. It brings us the joy of a calf skipping, even though there are times of darkness in our society, even struggles in our own life. Lord, may we learn to live for you with that silver lining and have that hope ever before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.